How do you pull a weed? You get it by its root. Why? So it doesn't grow back. Well, a lot of times when we have, you know, like alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, we're so focused on drug tests. We're so focused on abstinence and we're missing the bigger picture. You're listening to the Justice for Vets podcast when thank you is not enough. Hosted by retired Major General Butch Tate. This podcast is made possible with funding from the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Welcome to our podcast, Justice for Vets, when thank you is not enough. I remain your guide. I'm Butch Tate, Army veteran, and it's my pleasure to bring to you today uh, James Puckett. I'll, I'll talk in a moment and let James talk about his background, but let me tell you how we met. Uh, if you were able to listen to the first session of our podcast with James Poling, I met both Jameses at the same event, our conference this past summer. And I had the sort of luxury of sitting backstage and watching both uh, James Poling as he gave his performance with Modern Warrior Live. But then this guy, James Puckett, takes the stage as part of a panel discussion after that performance. And honestly, I was spellbound, not being dramatic, not overstating it. I thought, uh, this guy gets us. And by us, I mean veterans and those who may have experienced trauma, whether a veteran or not. So that's how we first met. And I knew then that as this podcast was taking shape, James would be someone we wanted to hear from as he talks about how veterans can move along their path from from trauma, again, whether it's battlefield trauma, whether it's military sexual trauma, any form of trauma in training, how we can move them along that path to recovery, to hope, to, to restoration. So really pleased to have James Puckett join us today. And James, what I'd like you to do, if you would please, is just, just give us a brief intro of kind of what your what your what your deal is yeah uh first of all thank you for the the, the introduction um thank you for your service and thank you very much for inviting me on this is um more meaningful than than you could have ever imagined so as as uh stated i'm james puckett i live in lacrosse wisconsin currently professionally i work as a clinical therapist with specialties in trauma and addiction I'm also uh, an assistant associate professor at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse in our psychology department. And then on the side, um, I am a faculty member for NADCP, where I get the pleasure of traveling across the country and working with um, law enforcement, judges, probation, anybody that has uh, a stake within the the, uh, drug court system, whether it be adult or juvenile. And then I I do training for a a group called Policy Research Associates, where I specifically work with people on how to work with uh, uh, justice-involved youth. Um, More importantly, uh, I'm a father of a seven-year-old boy and a soon-to-be one-year-old boy and uh, um, husband of a very loving wife. And um, we got a a boxer. So those are the more important things about me. But um, again, I can't uh, thank you enough for this opportunity to try to make some change, try to change some perspectives, and to give permission to people to heal. Thanks, James. And, and James, I, b- before I forget, I want to make sure we highlight your family's military history. The, the yeah. idea being that you can, you, you sort of have been around vets, you know what uh, vets uh, encounter and deal with. So tell us a little bit about your family's history. Yeah, so my both my parents served in uh, the U.S. Army. My my dad served for 28 years, retired as a, a warrant officer, um, was deployed over in Bosnia, um, served in 
he was in Japan. He was in Korea, um, all across the United States. I was actually born in Fort Knox. Uh, my mother uh, was actually part of the last graduating class of the Women's Army Corps and served for about 11 years. Um, and then I have a, an aunt that served as well. And my grandfather, um, who has passed away now, was a Marine who served uh, during the Korean War conflict. One of my, my best friend and my pastor growing up uh, served three tours in Vietnam. And, and I can remember um, just watching him kind of go through life. And it was something the the war is something he would never speak about. Um, he would acknowledge his service in Vietnam and sometimes it would show up in his, his sermons, but he would never talk about the nitty gritty of it as is very common with a, with a lot of veterans of that era. My clinical training actually came from, um, Dr. Joel Rooney, who was a psychologist for the 82nd airborne division. So the man who signed off on my licensure to make me certified, so to speak, um, also has a military background. So I grew up as a military brat, um, was fortunate enough to live in Germany for about four years. Like I said, born in Fort Knox, spent some time on Fort Campbell. And, and so the military has always been kind of part of my identity. Um, I've had the pleasure of serving veterans as a civilian uh, private practice um, clinician. So it, it is a population that is underserved, underappreciated, and undertreated. You know, we, we, we teach uh, clinicians now that make sure you're asking people if what their veteran status is, because about, you know, any, depending on the research, 12 to 15 percent of all adults identify as a veteran. So they're out there. So we have to do a better job at, at including them. So kind of went off on a tangent there, but that's my connection with the military. No, nah, tangents are good, James. Don't worry about that. You, you make an observation about the Women's Army Corps, and there are a number of vets sitting and listening to this going, man, what is that? <laughs> and we're not going to get into that, but yeah. um, uh, for sure, I know exactly what it is. That's how long I was I served. But look, let, let's get into the easy topic of demystifying the therapy process. As you know, we're we're, we're talking about how we get vets headed down that path of, of hope, of restoration, of recovery. And I, I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek that I'm going to want you to sort of demystify that process and talk to you about two things. The assessment process um, as, you, as, a, as a vet enters uh, therapy sessions, and then at the end we're going to talk about treatments and then where to get that help. So let, let, me, let me back up and ask you a couple of specific questions here. For a vet listening to this, and they're going to they're gonna ask themselves, how, how do I know I should get help? How do I know that that's something that, that I need that's going to get me started down that path? Talk about the assessment process, if you would. Sure. So when we talk about things that are disordered, um, it's it, it, it's the things that get in the way of kind of living our life. So all of us um, have experienced anxiety. We need it for our survival. All of us have felt down. Um, many of us have experienced a traumatic experience, but have been able to accommodate and kind of move forward without any life damaging consequences. Now, when things become disordered, we're talking about impact on one's mental, emotional health, physical health, relationships, work, school, play, things of that nature. So for it to be disordered, um, it, it has to kind of um, check those boxes. We don't want to pathologize very normal feelings. Now, 
when, as far as the assessment process, one thing I want to make very, very clear is my job as a clinician, first and foremost, is to earn your trust. I am trained in certain things. I have some knowledge in certain things, but you are the expert of your life. And throughout the whole process, from the minute I shake your hand and greet you and thank you for your service if you're a veteran, um, throughout the process, I'm earning your trust. And how do I do that? Well, I get your story. I ask you about your story. One of the big misconceptions um, I think of, of, of veterans specifically is you say the word veteran and people jump to PTSD immediately and they jump to the, the worst case scenarios where post-traumatic stress disorder um, comes out and we have you know violent crimes, we have people that are struggling with addiction. Um, so I think that's one of the barriers that perhaps keeps veterans away from um, treatment is because they're going in there already up against it. The other thing that, that I, I would say to veterans that are maybe thinking about getting treatment, you know, when you, when you feel that you're ready to reach out for help, not only as a clinician, their job is to earn your trust, but it's also to get your story. You know, when we were talking uh, yesterday, I kind of gave the example, if you have three soldiers that were in a firefight, you have three different perspectives. And to make the assumption that one experience covers the whole gamut of the veteran experience, you're making a very, very big mistake. When we were in Nashville, I, I cited a, a, a passage out of a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And the title actually is Lessons from Vietnam Veterans, where he talks to a veteran about the, the reluctance to use these pills to help him sleep at night. And the veteran said he, he's not going to take medication because of the nightmares help him remember his fallen buddies in Vietnam. And so we're talking about major survivor, survivor's guilt here. And the doctor that prescribed those medications, he took offense to that because how dare you? I'm the expert here. You came for me to get fixed, so to speak. And so listening to the person's story, finding out what the story means. And a lot of the times we learn that what we as clinicians think is extremely traumatic it's not the thing that's keeping the veterans stuck. It's something else. So trust building, um, listening to your story. You know, if you have a clinician that thinks they know what's best for you, I, I question the fit of the relationship. You are the expert of your life. Let's explore that a little bit. I'm, yeah. I'm putting myself in the boots of the veteran who says, you know what, James, I, I hear you appreciate what you do to help my colleagues, but, but I got this. Mm -hmm. I, I got it. I understand it. Mm -hmm. I'm good to go. Uh, Roger, thanks for what you do and, and good luck. How, how do you approach that vet who, at least on the surface, isn't open to therapy? Yeah. So, and, and that's a very common thing. Um, some people truly think that the therapy process isn't for them and they're just some people that aren't ready. What I do is just meet them where they're at. You know, I understand this is where you're at right now, but just know when you're ready, I'm here. I don't, I don't make it a power struggle because I, that's nobody wins with that. What I do is I invalidate your position. Um, I, I impose my values onto you, which is the last thing any of us want to have happen. So I meet them where they're at. And let's say that it's a situation where they're in veterans court and it's like a court ordered mandate that they have to see a therapist. What I would say to the, to the veteran is, okay, I understand you don't want to be here. You're here because somebody says you have to be here, but since you have to be here, is there something that we can work on? And maybe we don't talk about the alcohol. 
maybe we don't talk about, uh, you know, whatever the symptom is of, of the struggle. Maybe we talk about building that relationship back with their kids or reconnecting with their spirituality, um, how to take care of themselves better physically. That's great. And, I, and I've decided I'm going to take that first step and I'm going to go see a therapist. And does that mean I'm, that, that's my, I got one choice. I'm going to have to stay with that therapist or, I mean, what, what's your take when a vet says, you know what, that just wasn't right for me. I didn't like that person at all because unlike what you've said, mm-hmm. they weren't interested in, in my story. They were interested in telling me their story. So yep. how, how's that work? Do I get to go to another therapist? Absolutely. I, I, I like to, um, I like to empower people to, to inform them that, you know, I might not be the best fit for you and you have every right to seek out somebody different. And, and for me, it's not, it, it's, it's nothing against me personally. I just know that, you know, there's sometimes I'm not a good fit. And so all I care about is you getting the help and support that you deserve. Um, anybody, a, a clinician who tries to convince somebody to stay when they're not comfortable, all you're doing is you're, you're widening the gap of mistrust. And so I think as clinicians, we have to be open to, you know, recognizing that we're not the best fit for everybody. But one of the hardest things for clinicians, especially young clinicians, is we have to be okay being wrong sometimes. There's no benefit of of trying to be right all the time because we don't learn. I'm very okay saying or hearing James, no, that's not quite it. This is what I mean. I only benefit from that. So yes, you have the right to fire your therapist, just like you have the right to fire your psychiatrist, your family doctor. Don't say parent. lawyer. Don't don't say that. I'd be kind of offended by all that. But yeah, <laughs> I know the environment. <laughs> hey, uh, let me let me ask you again along those lines. Um, vet comes to you with what I would have heard as co-occurring disorders. More more than one thing going on in that veteran's uh, daily existence. Should I expect the therapist to, to try to address all of those issues? How does that work if I come in and I've got PTSD, I've got military sexual trauma, I've got uh, alcoholism, et cetera? How does that work? Sure. Good question. And, and what, what's happened in the past is the field would try to separate all those diagnoses and assign a clinician to each diagnosis. Well, I mean, if you just kind of say it out loud, if you have three places to go to address very hard things, it creates a barrier for people. So ideally, the clinician um, will be trained in trauma-informed care, will be trained in understanding how addiction and substance use works, will understand um, the basic tenets of being a clinician, and that's relationship building, rapport, empathy. Now, the way I operate is, and I get a lot of, you know, most of my work is in co-occurring disorders. Um, specifically when we have a mental health diagnosis uh, accompanied by a substance use disorder. You know, my philosophy and my perspective is that the substance use disorder is the symptom of the bigger issue. It, it is it is a symptom of the bigger issue because it's how people shut the brain off and cope. And so when we're doing, um, when we're developing a treatment plan, um, I, we talk about the substance use as in the form of, the symptom. And and I'll tell you, it's so interesting that when I work with people that have those co-occurring disorders, when we talk about the root causes or the cause of the symptom of drinking, for example, 
it's pretty amazing how little time we talk about actual drinking. Now, of course, you have to do behavior modification. Um, there's things of that sort. But when you talk about the, the root causes of the issue, you also will address the symptoms as well. I, I give my this this, you know, I, I have my students picture pulling weeds, for example. You know, how do you pull a weed? You get it by its root. Why? So it doesn't grow back. Well, a lot of times when we have, you know, like alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, we're so focused on drug tests, we're so focused on abstinence, and we're missing the bigger picture. Why in the world are you using this stuff? And I'm going to give you a quick example, if I may. It's from a, a really, really good book that did a number of um, things for me as far as my growth as a clinician. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate, and he talks about two adolescent um, males in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and they both were struggling with uh, methamphetamine addiction and they both were homeless. And so the basic question is, well, why do you like using meth? And they, this is their response. Well, being homeless, it's very hard to get food, but when we use meth, it curbs our appetite because it's a stimulant. So check one basic need. There goes the need for food. And the, the, the other young man said that, you know, being homeless is dangerous. But when we use methamphetamine, we can stay awake and alert and we can protect ourselves. So when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they've checked two boxes, the two most basic boxes, our basic needs and our safety and security by the use of methamphetamine. The question is, what has happened to you that these symptoms are expressing the way that they are? What happened to you that led you down the path of finding methamphetamine as your closest, most trusted ally? So asking the bigger question of what happened to you versus what's wrong with you is the approach I always take. And, and I recommend for people as they're looking for a clinician that is the right fit, I really, really encourage them and advocate for them to not just settle with somebody that has a license. Find the person who will take that holistic approach, learn your story, earn your trust, and really attack the issue. Otherwise, you're going to, be, you're going to continue symptom chasing. And symptom chasing, we know, does not work. You raise an interesting uh, or, or transition to an interesting topic, and that is there, there's, there's obviously no cookie-cutter solution. There, there are a variety of treatments available. So my, my question to you is, you know, how do you decide what type of treatment is most appropriate to help that veteran? Yeah, so my decision or what I bring forward as far as uh, treatment recommendations, they're just recommendations. And they have the right to say, no, I'm not ready to do that, or that doesn't quite work for me. But the way I go about making treatment recommendations is based on what their, their goals are, what the severity of the symptoms are, and where they're at developmentally. So for example, I've worked with some clients who are survivors of trauma that aren't quite ready to put words or language to their experience. And so that's fine. So what I do is I pivot and I offer painting as a solution. You know, paint me a depiction of how you're thinking or feeling. Um, I use uh, music. I, I have people identify a song that best fits their, their um, current situation or how they're feeling. And then we unpack it. And by doing that, it gives me an opportunity to not only give them gradual exposure to that pain, which can open the door for healing, but I get to model and teach language about very normal common feelings. 
And so it, it, in, for some people, they, they benefit from body work. So, you know, using that holistic approach, we may look at chiropractic care, massage, acupuncture, I uh, could do mental health nutrition. And so, you know, looking at how people are eating, how people are sleeping, if they're hydrating, I think you have to have a wide, big toolkit when working with people because not one size fits all. So the fact that one vet knows another and the other vet says, this is what my therapist is doing for me. Yep. If I hear that, I shouldn't necessarily think, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm getting sold short here because I'm, they're doing something else for me. But, yep. but clearly with no cookie cutter solution, there, there are likely to be or potentially different treatments for different vets, correct? Absolutely. It, it, I mean, the kind of a, maybe a silly parallel is if you go in for, um, you know, uh, a root canal and I have the same dentist and I show up for a cleaning and they decide to apply the, the, the intervention they did for you to me, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And we do this time and time again. Um, but the other thing I, I want to make clear too about any intervention, any intervention is only as good as the relationship of the clinician with the client. If you do not have the relationship, nothing's going to work. And that has been proven time and time again. No matter the evidence-based practice, if the relationship's not there, it's not going to work. And it takes time to build that relationship, correct? Yes, yeah. yes. And, and and clinicians need to know that it does take time. And, and vets as well. I mean, uh, I would yes. suspect yep. the patient or the client as well has to get comfortable with the idea. It, it's kind of like, if you will, going to the range, mm -hmm. the rifle range, where uh, you just don't go out on day one with um, the idea that I'm just going to shoot expert, just give me some ammo, I got this, and lay down and just start shooting. Yep, I suppose there's some folks that can do that, uh, present company excluded. Um, I, I'd like to ask you about one particular modality of treatment, and mm -hmm. you know I just made that up, right, because I don't, this is not my world. but It sounded I professional. Wanna, <laughs> <laughs> I want to be in this world for sure, at least understand it. You know, we, we've heard about the, the approach of sort of reliving your story. You talk about mm -hmm. your story, your source of the of the trauma time and again with your therapist. Mm -hmm. Is there an, there's obviously an upside to that. Yep. So I'd like you to address that. But also I want you, is there a downside to that as well? Because as you know, uh, some vets are like, hey, I already told you that once. So wh why every time I come in here, you're asking me the same stuff? What, what do you say to that? So the, the upside of that, we call it gradual exposure. And we have a saying in the trauma world, uh, specifically TFCBT, which is more of an intervention for, for kids and adolescents that you have to name it to tame it. So one of the upsides of gradual exposure is you get to tell your story from your perspective. And I think there's something very, very powerful with somebody listening to you to understand versus listening to you just to, to hear you. I think gradual exposure, what the other thing it does too, is it is it shows people that we can talk about tough things and you can still be safe. So in my office, when we talk about a, a tough topic, um, one of the things we do as I do throughout the process is I slow them down. I have them look to their left, to their right behind them. And I ask them their level of safety. And one of the things that I, I think it helps a lot of people with is, like I said, we can talk about these tough things. 
Um, one of the downsides, I think, of gradual exposure or exposure therapy is I think there's a belief system where we expose everybody to all the bad stuff at once. And we call that flooding. And when flooding happens to a client, that is solely the responsibility of the clinician. And no matter how much the client may say, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. It's still my responsibility to, to look out for them and ensure that um, we're pacing at a, at a, at a, at a, in a manner that they're learning something from it, they're getting something out of it, and I'm not doing more harm. Um, and it's, it, it can be a slow process. The other part with gradual exposure too that is very powerful, and I talked a little bit about this earlier, is, is how to model language. So if I'm working with somebody and they keep saying, when it happened, when it happened, my goal is to use the exact language of what happened. So one day they feel empowered to say, when my buddy was shot, when my buddy was shot, when we were um, in Fallujah, the more specific they can get with it, the more empowered people likely or a lot of times end up feeling with it. So we try to strip away the, the very bland um, vanilla um, labels of things and move to a place where they can talk about it from their perspective accurately. Um, I, gradual exposure is something I use, you know, when I'm doing my clinical work every single day. Like I said, the only downside of it is when the person is rushed. That's a really helpful explanation because on more than one occasion, let's just say multiple occasions, when I, when I talk to vets, and they say, yeah, I tried treatment, but mm -hmm. every time I walked in, the guy just wanted to know my story again. And, and so yeah. to your point about flooding, to your point about rushing, yep. critical, critical yep. to understand that. But also for the vets listening uh, to recognize that there are some real upsides to, to, to that approach. I know there's a lot of veterans who, who participate in things like NA or AA. So if you have somebody that is constantly asking to hear their story, my, my question is, well, what are you, the clinician, getting out of this? It sounds like you want to hear a story versus create a, a, an environment of healing and recovery. The story is important, but if you're doing your job effectively, um, you should know that asking people to retell their story over and over again can actually be re-traumatizing for the person. Now, NA and AA, there are very good meetings. There are meetings that keep people stuck. A lot of times the meetings that keep people stuck are the meetings where people go to and all they talk about is the drug and alcohol use. They end up telling war stories the whole time. Yeah, I used to drink this much or this one time I got so high. If you go to NA and AA meetings that are well ran by really solid leadership, you talk about the things that happen that has led to the drug use. It's rare you talk about the war stories. You talk about life. You talk about the stressors. You talk about the triggers. Um, more times than not, the people that end up going to these meetings where it's nothing but war stories, they are at higher risk of relapse. And it's interesting because dealers in certain towns know of these meetings and they will sit outside of meetings knowing that the people coming out are primed to slip or relapse again. Wow. Wow. That's a revelation I had not even heard or anticipated that it's it's sad and um, mm -hmm. you know kind of informative at the same time um, let me let me do a, 
a couple things, uh, James. We've, we've got uh, two more topics that I really want to get to. One is I, I am prone to do what are called kind of Tate's takeaways. And, and I'm just going to tell you what my takeaways are, and I hope they'll resonate with the vets who have been listening. You talked about empowering the person. You talked about trust. You talked about the the therapist not pretending to be an expert on you. I mean, only you know you. But nonetheless, their goal is to, to get a better understanding, and that understanding is, is ongoing. No cookie-cutter solution. You talked about person-centered. Um, all powerful takeaways to me about what our vets can expect or should expect when they come into that office with with the therapist. And and that kind of leads me to my final point. I'd, I'd like your thoughts on, okay, I'm listening to this podcast. It's twice I've been exposed to, to Tate's podcast. And, and now what? Where do I go to get help? How do I start? I got to take that like marching. I got to take that first step down this path. Where, where do I go to get help? The starting point to all this is the importance of connection. And there are many people that may be listening to this that can reflect on their military career and they miss the camaraderie. They miss the the trust building, the team building, uh, being able to rely on the person next to you. And when you transition to the civilian world, a lot of that is taken away. And so what ends up happening is we have high rates of, of isolation and we are wired to connect as people. Our survival has or our survival has dependent on connection and attachment. And so many of the veterans listening to this, one of the gifts that you already have is this team building background and experiences that you can use and apply in the civilian world, because that attachment is very important, even though many civilians may not quite get that. Rule number one is, 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 and, and I understand that it's me saying this is so much easier than in executing. I want to be very, very cognizant of that. And I want to make that known. Number one is, is coming out of hiding and breaking the no talk rule. Okay. And when you're ready, what I would suggest is finding a clinician who checks those boxes to begin with trauma informed has a background and understanding in addiction co-occurring disorders. Number two, test different modalities. Does group work for you? Does psychoeducation group work for you? Do, does individual therapy work for you? Does NAAA work for you? Um, there's CODA, there's Al-Anon. Do those things fit your personality and what you're looking for? And then when you're looking for specifics kind of in your area, um, you can go to the, the SAMHSA website, which is the uh, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Association, um, SAMHSA.gov. And there is a link there to find services in your area. And when you click on the little uh, hyperlink, you'll find information about the suicide hotline number. You'll find information of how to plug in your zip code and find local uh, clinicians. There's a wealth of information on that page. There's also an intervention called um, Internal Family Systems or IFS. IFS is a wonderful, wonderful trauma-informed intervention that is so person-centered, like it is microscopic person-centered and it's very individualized. And the people that are trained well in IFS, they do a great job in understanding your perspective. That's what it's about. 
And there you can go to the internal family's um, website, the official website and find a clinician in your area. Again, you plug in your zip code. Um, you can actually, I think you can put in your city and state and find the closest one to you. And what's, what's nice about this is there's a lot of IFS clinicians who may live like two hours away from you that offer virtual sessions too. And um, it can still be effective. And you've helped us, James, by providing me the, the websites, the links that we'll uh, post post on our um, yeah. NADCP Justice for Vets website. And if I can name one more, too, because this yeah, is very, very important, because when we're looking at um, helping veterans, making them feel welcome, I think we have to remember that some of them come with families, too, that deploy in their own way when the veteran deploys and returns home. And I, I also gave a, a website called uh, tfcbt.org, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. There is actually a military, uh, children from military families modality for it, for when mom and dad rotate back or if something, you know, if there's, there's um, sexual trauma in the military, because this is, I mean, what happens with our veterans and, and if they have families, it affects them too. So we want to make sure that we're treating the system, not just the individual. Um, so something just to consider for veterans that are listening that, that, that can see their kids kind of trying to, they're struggling with what mom or dad's going through. There's options and opportunities to help with kids as well. Gotcha. Hey, we've been listening to, uh, James Puckett. James, I want to thank you for the easy. Thank you is, is thank you for the time that you gave us t- today the effort you put into demystifying it, the challenge you had in educating me to know what to say with Tate's takeaway. So that's the easy thank you. The bigger thank you is all the hard work and professionalism that you've put into treating all those impacted by trauma to provide that trauma-informed treatment, but also your willingness to take on the support and the treatment of, of our vets. So we're, we're grateful for the information. You have helped me demystify it. Don't be offended when I summarize it all as Tate's takeaways. On behalf of our listeners, on behalf of NADCP and Justice for Vets, I want to thank James Puckett for being part of our podcast team and especially our team that provides all that valuable training and technical assistance to the field. So, James, I'll see you again down the road shortly. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. It is uh, it's a privilege to do this work. Thank you. And it, and it shows, James. It shows. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. This has been the Justice for Vets podcast when thank you is not enough. Hosted by retired Major General Butch Tate. This podcast is made possible with funding from the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Thanks for listening.